0: just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. If you've been following along here in season two, we've been taking a trip through ancient history the past three weeks to learn more about how humans and plants were in relationship. If you missed the first three episodes of the season, definitely go back and listen as we took a deep dive into how plants figured into ancient religious practices and how we may have gotten the wrong idea about what dominion over nature actually means for humanity. There's also a wonderful interview with historian Max Dashu, who shared a lot more context with us for what women's spiritual beliefs and practices would have been before Christianity became the rule of the land across Europe. Today, we're beginning to shift gears from the past to the present. If we're starting from scratch with our plant friends and allies, where do we begin? But before we get into today's episode, let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language Can bring such a richness to our day to day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and the energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the Earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy. And join our beautiful community. Now, to begin with, I want to start reframing our thinking around a certain type of plant weeds. Because I think it's easy to fall in love with the obvious plants that share their medicine through their beauty or their scent or well known healing qualities. But to truly begin to heal our collective relationship with plants, I think we have to look at how we've put them into categories of being either good plants that we want to cultivate and share, and bad plants that we want to poison and kill. My eyes were especially opened on this a number of years ago after reading the book Beyond the War on Invasive Species. I grew up on a farm and was very involved with the agricultural communities through 4-H and FFA in my younger years. Then I went on to college as a plant science major, and I totally took for granted that What was taught to generations of students like me was 100% the truth. But as my college years went by, I became more and more disillusioned by the industry. In my first year, we had a semester-long project comparing cattle, given growth hormones, to those who weren't. And it was made clear what our findings should be on our final reports. Then I took a required farm machinery class where the entire curriculum was focused around how to determine appropriate pesticide application rates by different tractors and implements. I remember a field trip to an orchard where we were told that it was impossible to grow fruit trees without spraying. And during a summer internship with a major fertilizer company who also pioneered the creation of genetically grown produce. I spent scorching hot days walking acre after acre of tomato fields, dodging rattlesnakes, and inspecting leaves for pests that the company could sell the farmer more pesticides for. I quit after about six weeks. It was totally miserable. And quit the entire ag program during the following school year. None of it was what I had in mind when I thought I was studying the science of how to grow and care for plants. Honestly, I thought it was my own failure for years that I had an inability to just get with the program like everybody else was able to do. But at that time in my life, I had no examples of anyone doing anything different. I was saturated with one set of ideals, no matter which direction I looked. And this was in like 1996. So no internet, no social media. If somebody didn't tell me about it or I didn't see a flyer on a bulletin board, it may as well not have existed. And so reading about how an entire industry and education system was created to convince us that certain plants or pests are bad and that there's only one solution to deal with them was validating for me on a level I didn't even realize I needed. So let me give you a little overview as to how this came to be. Because of course, weeds are nothing new. Farmers have been dealing with them for as long as they've tilled the soil. But in 1958, Charles Elton, the father of invasion ecology, published The Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants, which argued that organisms that flourished in regions where they did not evolve should be considered invaders that pose imminent harm to their new ecosystems. And that was a very new and convenient idea, because This was in a post-war environment where the US government had undertaken a strategic mission to secure food supplies to Europe and Japan to help quell further social upheaval. We also now had synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that allowed farmers to cultivate more land without growing cover crops or providing pasture for animals that once added the needed fertility to the soil. Plus, we had all kinds of surplus equipment from the war that now could find uses as tractors and pesticide sprayers, never mind the insecticides and nerve gas that were suddenly reimagined as pesticides and herbicides. So fast forward to 1974, and Congress signed the Federal Noxious Weed Act, which banned the importation of plants that interfere with the growth of useful plants. So, not invasive plants per se, just plants that get in the way of what the government deems to be useful, or rather detrimental to agriculture or commerce. Of course, it was our government who introduced many of these plants in the first place for some kind of ecological benefit. Plants like sea buckthorn, brush honeysuckle, and multiflora rose were deemed useful as habitat or as wildlife food. The Soil Conservation Service distributed 85 million kudzu ceilings to stabilize eroding slopes in the southeast and paid landowners to plant it. Now, if you see kudzu growing today, you know that it did its job in stabilizing the soil. And then it got a little carried away. Today, the federal government allocates up to a billion dollars each year to research and control invasive species. Now, nearly half of that money is spent on pesticides. And as it turns out, the government still isn't 100% clear on the exact definition of an invasive species. And guess who sits on the boards of these quasi-government organizations who decide such things? The manufacturers of herbicides and spraying equipment. Of course. And hang with me here, because I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think until we understand that how we think about certain plants has been manufactured by the companies who profit when we buy their products to kill these plants, it's difficult to begin changing our long-held beliefs. In fact, the board of the nonprofit Western Society of Weed Science features prominent members from Syngenta, Dow Chemical, Monsanto, Bayer Crop Science, BASF Corporation, and DuPont. Now, why would any of these companies advocate for any other studies or papers to be written in any other way to manage weeds, but through chemical control? And here's the kicker, and the bit of validation that made my college experience make so much more sense. Across the United States are publicly funded land-grant universities, like the one that I attended. These schools are the backbone of agricultural research in our country and receive large endowments from private sector companies like Monsanto, Cargill, Syngenta, and DuPont. A 2012 study found that nearly 25% of funding for ag research at these public schools comes from private companies like them, which makes sense now how my freshman year project had the understanding that we needed to find that there was no difference between genetically modified or organic beef other than a faster-growing steer which of course every farmer would want. We were being taught to be compliant buyers and promoters of these products while we were still teenagers without any kind of warning label on the college brochure that our educational curriculum was sponsored by pesticide manufacturers. And this is why most people don't think twice about buying a gallon of Roundup at the hardware store on the weekend to drown and kill some unsuspecting plant, not to mention poison the soil and our waterways. Even if we weren't ag majors in school, we're at least the third generation to have been submitted to relentless media advertising, peer pressure from our neighbors if our front yard has a dandelion or two, and hostile letters from the county weed board if we don't eradicate known offenders from our rural properties immediately. And we wonder why there are plants who have no interest in talking with us humans, never mind helping us. They show up to do a highly specific job in an area, and then we wage war on them. And that's just plant species that, through primarily human intervention, either accidentally or on purpose, were removed from an ecosystem where they were welcome and transplanted to one where they somehow had the upper hand. There's also all of the plant and fungi species that have been labeled as toxic that we have been told to stay far, far away from. Many of those plants have had long histories of being powerful healers in the hands of someone who knew what to do with them. In fact, in Max Dashu's book, which is in Pagans, She mentions that henbane seeds were found in a leather pouch buried with a Danish priestess. Henbane is regularly listed as a toxic plant, and it is. It can certainly cause death if consumed in a large dose, as is possible with many plants, but also with pharmaceuticals. They can be beneficial when dosed correctly and deadly when overdosed. But henbane is a psychotropic plant that was prized for its medicinal uses by the ancient Greeks and Romans and has a long history of use across Europe. So don't dismiss a plant simply lumped into the toxic chapter of your local field guide. They have important wisdom to share, even if you don't ingest them. But we are so collectively terrified as so much as touching an unknown mushroom or plant that it's keeping us from getting to know and work with these beautiful beings. Now, side note, since mushrooms seem to be the ones that scare people the most, you cannot get sick or die from touching a mushroom. You can't. Even the truly deadly ones, like the destroying angel. Now, there are some that might give you contact dermatitis if you have an allergy, or you know something like stinging nettle is going to let you know if you've brushed up against it. So it's always good to wash your hands after being outside. By all means, get to know the plants and fungi and moss and lichens in your yard. Touch them. Say hello to them. Let them know that you're not afraid of them. Just be sure you have a credible ID on them before you put them in your mouth. That's when things can go sideways if you don't know what you're foraging. Okay, so back to the plants. Because once we can drop our prejudices about certain species, we can start learning about the wisdom they have for us about both the land and ourselves. Let's take dandelions, for example, because they are so ubiquitous here in the States. You probably already know that they are important as an early forage for bees in the spring. When it's warm enough for bees to be flying, but not warm enough for a lot of blooms, dandelions fill the gap and give these pollinators something to eat. I think that's reason enough to leave them alone, but they do so much more than just feed the bees. First, they have a long, deep tap root, which you probably know if you've pulled one out of your lawn. But that root serves an important purpose. It loosens up compacted soil, the kind of soil that's been driven over with heavy equipment, like when a subdivision is built, or heavy clay soils. So it also helps to aerate the soil and reduce erosion. And since that taproot can reach so much further down into the soil, it can reach nutrients like calcium that other plants can't, and it'll bring it up closer to the surface for the other plants to access. Calcium is an essential nutrient that plants need to build and strengthen their cell walls. So when you see a yard full of dandelions, you should be thinking, oh, that soil is compacted and calcium deficient. dandelion has arrived on the scene to rescue it. Because once it's done its job balancing nutrients and aerating the soil, you'll notice that its population will decrease and whatever is needed next to bring the land into balance will show up. This is how nature works when we're not in such a hurry to bend it into some picture-perfect image that doesn't actually exist in nature. Now, on top of dandelion's services to the soil and the other plants that are growing around it, It also offers us a long list of healing benefits by stimulating digestion, helping our kidneys function better, detoxing the liver, and helping to regulate blood sugar and blood pressure, just to name a few things. But from an energetic level, what can we also learn from the dandelion? Well, through all efforts to poison and kill this plant, it just keeps coming back, looking as healthy and robust as can be. It also grows in impossible places, like through the tiniest crack in the sidewalk. This plant is carrying codes of invincibility. You want to be strong, fearless of anything anyone can throw at you and feel utterly invincible? Ask Dandelion to work with you. And I think this is where we begin rebuilding some of our lost plant connections. By looking around for what is flourishing in our current landscape. Not only at the native plants, which we should definitely get to know and work with, but also the immigrants, the ones who have come to love our communities and our backyards. And also at the threatened or endangered plants that used to be an important part of the ecosystem but have now dwindled. Start making a list of these plants and see which ones most captivate you or draw you in. Look around and see which plants are volunteering right around you already. Ones that you didn't plant, but seem to be trying to get your attention. And then pick one that you would like to spend a month getting to know, or maybe even an entire season or a year. We are so conditioned to want to know what exactly something can do for us in a 30-second Google search or by reading a label on the back of a box. But as we've talked about many times, nature moves at a slower pace. So take your time with the plant that you choose. Let its wisdom unfold and know that while some of its teachings may be universal, some may be unique just for you. Bring it into your house and place it on your altar or your nightstand and let the plant read your energy and get to know you, your personality, your specific needs. Now, before you pick it or take a cutting, do take some time to read about it and get to know it. Some of the spring ephemeral plants I know that I are growing on my property, like Trillium and lady slipper orchids are very fragile. You could say they're the anti-dandelion. So picking the flowers of these plants can actually damage the roots of the plants themselves. So some plant allies you need to work with right where they grow, which I'm sure is a bit of medicine in and of itself. But give yourself time to really get to know this plant on a variety of levels. What does it physically do on the landscape? Does it provide nitrogen for other plants to grow bigger and stronger? Does it cover bare ground after a fire or disturbance? Is it an important host or forage plant for insects or birds or deer? Do some research to find out if this was a plant the indigenous people in your area were familiar with and how they worked with it. But then ask the plant what it wants to share with you. Because remember, plants have evolved right along with humans. What humans or the ecosystem most needed them to do 100 or 1,000 years ago may not be what we need today, and they may have adapted to that. This is why reference books and Google should only be a starting point if you consult those resources at all. And also notice the more subtle ways that the plant interacts with you. Do you feel it working on any particular part of your body when you interact with it? Does it show you particular images or pictures in your mind's eye? Or do certain words or phrases pop into your head? These are all ways that we can start coming back into a much more intimate relationship with the plants that we see each and every day. It's how our ancestors would have learned about the plants themselves. And speaking of our ancestors, you can journey to meet with your earth honoring ancestors and learn from them too. In fact, that's one of the things that we do in the Earth Tenders Academy. And once you're acquainted with them, ask them to show you a plant that was important in their community. Even if it's not native to where you live now, it's likely that you can order some seeds or a plant that you can cultivate in your yard or in your home. It's a beautiful way to connect with the plant medicines that are in your lineage. And as you start working with the plants in this way, keep a journal of your experiences and you can start building your very own Materia medica. Little by little, you'll get to know not just the individual plants in your ecosystem, but how they work together, how they feed or repel the local wildlife, what creatures or weather conditions they need to distribute their seeds, and the growing conditions that they need to thrive. And I can't help but think that as you become an ally to these plants on a personal level, you'll feel like you'll want to be their friends on another level too. That you'll sing their praises to your friends and family and advocate for their protection if you feel so called in your community. Because once you get to know that one little spot down by the creek, that only place that you found a particular plant growing, you're not going to want to see it damaged or destroyed. And you might feel compelled to speak up. For me, I am four years into trying to convince my homeowners association board to stop spraying the same herbicides that were used in Agent Orange during Vietnam to control invasive plants along the roadsides that never seemed to go away, no matter how many times they spray them. The first two years, I was ignored completely and promised that the herbicides were perfectly safe no matter how many scientific articles I forwarded to them. Now, the third year, they told me they'd look into it. And the fourth year, they still sprayed. But They changed the product to some kind of hormone that would keep the plant from producing seeds instead of using an herbicide. And they've started informing the homeowners before spraying to give us the opportunity to opt out. So I am starting to make progress, but I'm not giving up yet. As it turns out, HOA boards move about as quickly as nature does, and I've got plenty of time to keep being a thorn in their side on this. It is the least that I can do for the plants, animals, insects, birds, and humans that live there. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about helping specific plant communities regenerate and how much of an impact our actions can have. But I want to leave you this week with some thoughts from another insightful book called Nature's Best Hope by Douglas Tallamy, because I think that we often feel small and insignificant in the face of ecosystem loss. At this point, 95% of the land in the lower 48 states has been logged, tilled, drained, grazed, paved, or otherwise developed. The rivers have been straightened and dammed, the air is polluted, and our aquifers have been pumped dry. So what on earth could we possibly do to help? Mr. Talamy has an intriguing suggestion. Today, more than 83% of the United States is privately owned. East of the Mississippi River, that number is closer to 90%. If we are to conserve critical ecosystems and habitat, we're going to have to rely on private landowners. And not just those that own large tracts of land. This can be done with every single little patch of land in the urban and suburban areas. And in fact, we need every little patch of lawn to start supporting more plant, animal, insect, and bird species. Because one little patch of woods that's not connected to any other little patch of woods for miles in every direction, doesn't allow these natural habitats to grow and spread and return to healthy numbers. We get annoyed if skunks move in under our deck or there's a fox raiding the chicken coop, but there's literally nowhere else for them to go. They're adapting to their changing environment. So if we can start connecting these tiny isolated natural areas to each other, By building biological corridors between them, the species can begin to intermingle and increase their populations, and they'll be less vulnerable to local extinctions. And where do we build these corridors? We start with our lawns. We're already wasting too much water and dumping too many chemical fertilizers and herbicides on them just to keep them green it's time to swap or at least shrink our lawns in favor of ecosystems supporting native plants and trees. Douglas suggests that if every American homeowner committed to replacing half of their lawn to productive native plant communities, it would restore 20 million acres of productive ecosystem function across the country. 20 million acres is bigger than the combined acreage of 13 of our country's largest national parks. If we can do that, we can create the largest park system in the United States in our own front and backyards. It would be the largest cooperative voluntary conservation project ever attempted. And you don't have to worry about all the different layers of creatures that are missing from your current neighborhood. All you have to do is put the plants in place and everything else will find its way to you. If you build it, they will come, for real. In fact, I simply stopped weed-eating the plot of land between our driveway and the road a couple years ago and just let the native grasses go wild. And yes, there are some plants that our county and the HOA consider invasive mixed in there. But after a couple of years of just leaving it alone, those plants are dwindling, patches of wildflowers are starting to appear, and there are far more birds there than ever before. And because there are more birds, it means there's fewer insects, including wasps, hanging around the house. And in the last few months, during the dead of winter, I've spotted an owl spending an entire morning hunting in that area, and a weasel whose primary diet is mice hanging around by the driveway, all because I quit doing some yard work and let nature figure it out. So. As you get to know and love these native plants in your neck of the woods, find a place for them in your landscape. Even putting a few in some pots on an apartment balcony will be a welcome stopover for birds and butterflies going from here to there. In my experience, one person on a block making these kinds of changes can inspire more people to do the same. And that's how these corridors can be built. As Douglas says in his book, once a cardinal lands in your yard, It's not just any cardinal, it's your cardinal, and you want it to hang around, have a bite to eat, and maybe build a nest to raise some baby cardinals. It's a lot easier to get people to care about nature when they have a direct interaction with it. And I can't wait to hear about how we can all start building this new national park system, no matter where in the world you live. So, share some photos of the plants that you decide to work with in our following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook so that we can see them. Next week, we're going to talk more about energetically working with plants in meditation and in dreams, and get into some more detail on working with toxic plants with my guest, Marcy Moberg. And in a few weeks, you'll hear another interview with Druid Dana O'Driscoll, who will share even more about how to regenerate these native plant communities in a very intentional and magical way. Of course, if you're feeling like the Earth Tenders Academy could support you on your journey, don't forget to check out the link in the show notes. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here on the Earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you right back here next Tuesday.